tax practitioners can now use their well-developed professional judgment to help a client of theirs self-assess for non-commercial losses throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and through other disasters that have occurred over the past few years. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 369 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. The ATO has issued Practical Compliance Guideline 2022-D2, PCG 2022-D2. And this PCG makes it easier to qualify under the non-commercial loss provisions. So it will be easier to tax deduct sole trader losses against other income. So in this interview today, Let's talk with Ben Miller about the non-commercial loss provisions and this PCG. Ben Miller is the Senior Content Management Analyst of Wolters Kluver in Australia. As you know, Wolters Kluver does the CCHI Note tax research platform. So let's first ask Ben about the provisions in general because there are some quirky details. And then let's look at this PCG that will make it easier for your sole trader clients and also individual partners and partnerships to tax deduct losses against other income. And I'm really sorry, Ben's headset mic didn't work. And so the recording came through his laptop mic, which is not great. Please accept my apologies, but I'm hoping that it will still be all right. So here's Ben Miller of Wolters Kluver in Australia about the non-commercial loss provisions and PCG 2022-D2. we're talking about the non-commercial losses, what we're really talking about here is uh, Division 35 of the 1997 Income Tax Assessment Act. Now, that division is titled Deferral of Losses from Non-Commercial Business Activities. And as the title suggests, when a business activity incurs a net loss for an income year, that loss must be deferred if it is considered under the Act to be non-commercial. So therefore, as practitioners, we want to try and get around or avoid these rules that make a client's business non-commercial. And that's where we have the non-commercial loss rules. These are effectively exceptions to the rule. If an exception applies... So what we basically want, we want to make the losses commercial. We want to avoid of them being non-commercial. We want the losses to be commercial, correct? That's right. That's essentially how the legislation intends to operate. It's that everything is to be deferred unless these exceptions apply. You're basically starting with everything is deferred. The default position is it's deferred unless you can find a loophole to bring it in. Whereas I think we as tax agents, we often come with, yes, it's a loss. Of course, it's there unless it has to go out. But we actually need to come from the other way. It's out unless we can bring it in. That's right. That's right. Can I talk with you about something quickly else? And that is just looking at losses in general through the different entities. We don't really have this issue in companies because company losses are barred from other income outside the company anyway. But within the company, let's say if we have several different businesses within the company, there are no limitations to offsetting the loss from one business with the uh, profit of another business. So why losses in a company are ring fenced within the company, we can offset as much as we want, correct? 
That's correct. And so then that's uh, that's a very, very key part of Division 35 is that it, it actually goes on to utilise the term business activity. So each individual business activity that a sole trader or a partner in a partnership for tax purposes is undertaking as a business activity, it needs to be uh, looked at in isolation uh, from the other business activities that the individual may be carrying on when applying Division 35. So some of them may have a profit and then they will go through into the assessable income area in the individual tax return. But the ones that are, the business activities that have a loss, they need to look at specifically the business activity and determine one of, whether one of the statutory exemptions apply. And so to compare this with the company again, there's actually one thing that is better and one thing that is worse. The thing that is worse with a company is that when you make a loss in a company, it's always ring-fenced within that company. You will never be able to tax deduct the loss you make in your company from your employment income, for example. It's always ring-fenced in the company. But for that, that's a negative, but for that, you can offset different business activities within the company, which you can't as an individual. And so as an individual, you have the potential chance that you can offset business losses with other income, for example, with employment income. That is something you can't do in the company, but you can do as an individual. But for that, you have to look at each business activity separately, which you don't have to do in a company, correct? That's correct. That's correct. And now just quickly looking at trusts. I know in your notes you said that a trust can only claim tax losses under very specific circumstances. Can you elaborate on that? Because in my head, trust losses basically have the same dynamic as company losses, meaning trust losses are ring-fenced within the trust, but then within the trust you don't distinguish between business activity, it's all thrown into one pot. Am I right or am I wrong? Yeah, that's right. Generally speaking, uh, a trust loss will need to be deferred until such time as the trustees are able to distribute any gains that are made in that trust structure. It would actually be Chapter 2F of the 1936 Tax Act. And they, they, they can only really be utilised if a, a trust is not utilising, say, for example, a family a trust election or enterprise entity election uh, and things of that nature. So in, in practice, I would think that uh, a lot of practitioners are utilising those types of elections in their trusts. And then therefore, like as we have, as you just mentioned, the, the losses that a trust would make would ordinarily be quarantined. It's only under very, very strict and very, very small number of, uh, of abilities in which a trust can utilise a tax loss. Perhaps inside inside a uh, inside a tax consolidated structure. I did want to point out though that um, in the company's area, ordinarily, like you you did mention that a company does need to ring fence its losses. There are, however, certain temporary provisions that are in place in current years that were introduced by the uh, former uh, government. Uh, in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. So there are limited options in which a company could currently uh, claim a tax refund on tax that was paid in a previous income year. Yes, due to a carry back. Yeah. Instead of a carry forward, a carry back, yeah. Mm. But ultimately that's, uh, ordinarily speaking, you know, you, you have to look at things like 
uh, your franking account. You'll have to look at things like your accumulated income inside of the company as well. So before you start thinking about trying to get a uh, claim back from uh, previous tax paid. So ultimately, for the most part, companies will need to ring fence their losses. So that's companies and trusts. The losses are basically stuck in those entities. But now we come to individuals and partnerships. And when we think of the commercial loss provisions, of course, we always think of individuals, but they also apply to partnership income, correct? That's correct. It applies essentially to a partner's share in that partnership income. But yes, ordinarily speaking, where you have partners in a partnership who are not individuals for uh, tax purposes, you may have a partnership in place with a a corporation. But uh, ultimately, Division 35 exists within the individual tax return. And ultimately, they would be an individual partner in a partnership can also utilise, will also must uh, steer clear of Division 35 in order to utilise a a loss and and, and not defer it. Basically, whenever you want to claim a tax loss from a business activity in an individual tax return, you need to clear Division 35 of ITAA 97. That's correct. And there's four main statutory tests that are in Division 35. Uh, and that will allow an individual to deduct the net loss from that business activity against their other assessable income, for example, that employment income. The first test is called the assessable income test. And the assessable income test is essentially that the assessable income for the from the income year from the business activity is greater than $20,000. The profits test is the second test, and that is that the particular business activity must have resulted in a taxable profit in at least three out of the last five income years. And then the last two statutory tests are relating to assets that may be, or that need to be used in a, on a continuing basis in carrying on the uh, relevant business activity. Uh, the first assets test, that is inside Division 35 that provides the exemption is known as the real property real property test. And that is that the total reduced cost basis of real property or interests in real property used on a continuing basis in carrying on the business activity must be at least $500,000 or the other assets test, which is the total value of other assets except that of motor vehicles used on a continuing basis in the business activity must be at least So overriding all four of these statutory tests is also a general income requirement that we need to be aware of, which is effectively that the other income of the individual, say, for example, from employment income, uh, must be less than $250,000 for the relevant income year. So if your client doesn't pass any of these four tests, or they don't pass the income requirement because their other income is above $250,000, then as a practitioner, you need to get the commissioner's discretion for special circumstances. Can I look into some of these a bit more now? First of all, the income test, that is all other accessible income. So it would include capital gains, for example, correct? That's correct. So if you happen to have sold something with a capital gain in that year, then and that capital gain is higher than 250000 or if in total your assessable gain is more than 250000 then you basically don't need to look at the year four tests because you're already out. 
That's right. You'll need to get the commissioner's discretion for special circumstances that they should not apply the income requirement if it is above $250,000. And then the next thing is the turnover of 20000 per year. So even though you made a loss in that year, you still need to have a turnover of at least $20,000 in that year. And I can imagine for the pandemic that might wobble. You know, because if, for example, if a restaurant was locked down for a large part of the year and hence doesn't have a turnover of 20,000 because of the lockdown, that might warrant special circumstances. But putting the pandemic aside, the turnover needs to be 20,000 a year, even if you made a loss in that year. And even if your turnover was always much higher in other years, it also must be at least $20,000 in the, in the loss year, correct? That is correct, yes. Um, if it is below $20,000, sometimes special circumstances can be granted when it can be shown that in an ordinary year that you would usually get above $20,000, but there were factors that were outside of your control or factors that occurred directly to you as the individual sole trader or partner in the partnership that meant that you could not get across that $20,000 line. Oh, I see. Okay, good. So for example, if the uh, sole trader was sick and uh, couldn't work for the entire year, uh, for example, in those circumstances, correct? Correct. Now for the second test, the profit test, it doesn't give a threshold for profit. It basically just says needs to be profitable. So a profit of 0.01, so basically a profit of one cent for three years would be enough to meet that requirement, correct? That's right. But, uh, the thing about the, the profits test that it needs to be taken into consideration is that there is no there's no 60% requirement. It is three of the last five income years. So for a sole trader or a partnership who may be just starting out in their particular business activity, it needs to be of in operation for at least five income years for the profits test to apply. So that can cancel out quite a number of sole traders, um, especially when they are starting up a business activity. And last five years is excluding the current loss year, correct? Correct. So if you're talking 2022 is the loss year, then it would have to be 21, 20, 19, 18 and 2017. That's right. And three of those five years would have to be in a profit. That's right. Real property, does the business need to be owning that property or they only need to be using that property so they could be renting a property that is worth at least $500,000 or do they need to own it actually it's more than $500,000 so $500,000 wouldn't cross the line so do they need to own that real property or is renting enough yes yeah, so the legislation uses the term uh, reduced cost basis so that implies that uh the capital gains section would apply, you know, they, they would be utilizing the terminology that applies that generally into the capital gains tax area. So that would be definitely uh, in a situation where they would need to own real property or have interest in real property, you know, and it must be utilized on a continuing basis in carrying on that business activity as well. Okay, so then I think that test won't apply to many businesses because many businesses rent their business premises. What about if the um, business premises are owned by the, the SMSF and not by the business, would it then qualify? 
No, I don't think it would because the test is based on an individual basis. And I think that from the Division 35 standpoint, it is not looking at related entities in that regard. Then I think this test will not apply to many people. Yeah, the, the, only, the only people that I probably would see that would pass the real property test were people that have significant land holdings in their business. So they might be primary producers and people that are operating you know, in the uh, agricultural industry. So you, you may not necessarily have the accessible income for the year above $20,000 because you may have had a, a drought or, or, you, you may, or you may not have sold any of your, um, your head of livestock and you may not have been operating for, you know, five income years in order to utilise the profits test. But then again, you may have a significant parcel of land that you're utilising on an ongoing basis on that business activity. And that would be over the $500,000 threshold. So that probably would be the only consideration that I would take uh, in terms of real property test and then those clients that would pass that real property test. And then the other asset test, again, you would have to own those assets. You wouldn't be able to lease them. You need, would need to hold legal ownership of those assets worth greater than $100,000, correct? It's an interesting point that you make there in terms of leasing because you can have things like finance leases. So, and as a result of that, you, you may still have control of the, that asset uh, throughout its lease term and you may have an option to buy. So it's not necessarily uh, you have to go and buy those assets, but um, you know, ultimately uh, getting over that $100,000 test for an individual can be significant. Um, especially when you are excluding motor vehicles from that calculation. Ultimately, I, I believe with Division 35, what we're looking at with the other assets test is ensuring that you know, if an individual has made a significant inroads into purchasing large amounts of or holding large amounts of plant equipment in running their business, that it, it can ordinarily be determined that they are commercial because of the capital outlay that is in place uh, in relation to carrying on that business activity. Ben, I think this $250,000 that has been there for a long time, I think it has been there for at least 10 years. Is that possible? So it hasn't been adjusted for inflation at all, correct? That is correct. It has not been adjusted for inflation. I could give you an answer on when that actually... So we were looking at when the 250000 was last adjusted because that 250000 will lose, yeah, will make the non-commercial loss provisions harder and hard, harder to pass. You know, 10 years ago, that would still have been a reasonably high threshold, but it's becoming less and less. Yeah, that's right. The income requirement came in in the... It began in the 2009-2010 income year. And uh, as you just... Uh, mentioned there, like $250,000 probably was a considerable sum of uh, other income to have 12 years ago. But that, the fact that that has not changed in the, the last 12 years may mean that more people who are running, say, smaller businesses alongside their employment income may be captured by that. And then therefore, if they are above the $250,000 Uh, limit, then they are going to need to get the commissioner's discretion in a private binding ruling uh, in order to deduct those losses from those other business activities that they're carrying on. Do you know how many private binding rulings are issued around this income threshold? Are private rulings public? Private rulings are publicly available by the ATO, but they do redact them. What we do see is 
non-commercial business losses, because it requires the commissioner's discretion, it's one of sort of maybe four or five major discretions that the commissioner does uh, require a private binding ruling uh, to apply that discretion in, when it's uh, making its judgments. So we do see quite a number of non-commercial uh, loss commissioner's discretion, private binding rulings come through. Uh, and as long as you've got a, a pretty good search platform, then you've got an ability to then weed through a lot of the noise that exists on that private binding rulings database and be able to get, get, get an answer that might be closer to your, your, your customer's uh, specific set of circumstances. Because ultimately, having to go through a private binding ruling can be quite tricky from a practitioner's point of view. Uh, I know this from being in practice myself is that having to persuade a client to provide a lot of information and personal information that relates to a business activity direct to the regulator can be a sticking point in terms of getting that private binding ruling or even just applying for a private binding ruling. So the one thing that we want to make sure is we want to make sure that Sure that the information that we can gather from our research platforms or, or from the, the ATO legal database can actually give us a pretty good indication of whether we will be successful. Because ultimately, if you're not successful in a private binding ruling, then your client is looking at you thinking, well, why did I give all of this personal data about my business activity to the commissioner for no reason, only to, only to have it deferred for a year or two years or when I ultimately make a profit. So that's where having a really good you know, platform and being able to understand your client's activities and understanding what they're specifically doing with their business and what are the circumstances around their business loss or their active, the loss in their business activity for the particular income year, you'd be able to match that against uh, another private binding ruling will definitely take you a long way towards uh, making sure that you can get uh, a favourable private binding ruling. But ultimately, the, the difficulty exists because these things can go either way. It's ultimately the commissioner's discretion in terms of whether they apply non-commercial losses or not. I can imagine that the area that has the highest chance of receiving the commissioner's discretion is the um, turnover test the, the first test, the assessable income test. If you can show that due to circumstances out of your control, your income was less than 20,000 in that year, but it has always been more than 20,000 until, until then and will most likely be higher than 20,000 again, then I think you have a very good chance for the commissioner's discretion. Where I think you have very little chance of commissioner's discretion is the $250,000 threshold because if one makes an ex exception with one person earning more and still qualifying, then, you know, then it's basically no threshold anymore because then everybody who earns more than 250 would qualify for, for that discretion. Would you agree with me? I would agree, and that's what a lot of our research has indicated. I would also say that um, when you're above $250,000 in other income, you are paying tax at the highest national tax rate. So it's, I believe it's a lot higher of a bar that the, um, the ATO is sort of putting on individual taxpayers in order to clear that commercial loss rules, in order to claim that deduction against their other income and ultimately get a refund of that net loss 
45% plus Medicare, yeah. Yes, because if you deduct losses against income that is over 180,000, then of course it costs the ATO 47 cents in a dollar. Whereas if you offset losses against $40,000 of income, it costs you relatively little or it costs the ATO relatively little. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, sorry, my second question was, you mentioned before that there are five areas where the commissioner's discretion is most relevant and most sought after. And one of these five areas is the non-commercial loss provisions. Can you give me a hint of what the other four main areas are where the commissioner's discretion is, is sought? Yes. So um, not only is there non-commercial losses, of course, one other thing that we do see quite a lot of, especially uh, recently, is uh, the commissioner has the discretion to disregard a Division 718 dividend. So that's one area in which the commissioner will ultimately get a, quite a number of private rulings because the taxpayers do not want to have uh, a deemed Division 7 a dividend in yes. a particular income year. Yes. Uh, another main one that we do see a lot of, and there has been a, a some guidance on you know, providing safe harbours, providing safe harbours around this particular one. And it's a capital gains main residence exemption. So essentially, if you are inheriting a property, for example, you may be inheriting it from your parents uh, who have, um, you know, obviously have passed away. Their main residence exemption is extended for two years uh, if it is sold by an executor of a deceased estate. And so then that two-year exemption from getting capital gains tax, there is a discretion that allows the commissioner to grant a longer period of time in certain circumstances. And so those are definitely a couple main ones there. Another one also in relation to capital gains tax that does come up in, in relation to small businesses, and that is the two-year replacement asset test as well. So if you have a capital gains and you're a small business entity, you're able to use a rollover exemption to, to obtain a replacement asset for utilizing or perhaps purchasing a, a new business. And so Again, with that two-year exemption, the, the discretion is there because they don't want to set in stone a set number of, say, months in order to get that exemption because obviously there can be circumstances outside the taxpayer's control. So those are probably uh, two or three of the main ones that we see alongside Division 35 exemption. Yeah, so you listed four in total. The first one is the non-commercial loss provisions that we are just discussing. The second one is the, to disregard a deemed Division 7A dividend. The third one is to extend the two-year limit on main residence exemptions, you know, after somebody inherits a, a property. And then the fourth one is to extend the two-year limit on the um, rollover of uh, to a replacement asset. Those are the four that come to mind for you. Yep. Yeah. Good. So those four are the main areas where the commissioner's discretion is sought. That's correct. And, and of course, there are some safe harbours that the uh, commissioner is allowing taxpayers in order for them to you know, self-assess that uh, discretion. Uh, and ultimately, that might happen because the commissioner may get a number or is expecting a number of uh, private binding rulings to be coming their way. Hmm. Uh, in, in relation to a particular issue. Good. So now we are coming back to the non-commercial loss provision. So we went 
through the exemption. So the default is that any losses from a sole trader or a partnership with an individual partner, that any of those losses are outside and need to be deferred. But we went through the exemptions that allow us to bring those losses back into the individual tax return and offset it against other income. So those were the general rules. So now the question is, how are these adjusted uh, for COVID or were they even adjusted for COVID? What have you seen? Yeah, so one thing that we have definitely seen in the last couple of years has been an influx of commissioner's discretion in relation to the fact that a business may not have been operating at full capacity, uh, not only in relation to COVID, but also in relation to another a number of natural disasters that have occurred throughout the, uh, throughout the past two and a half years. So to address this probably mountain of private rulings that the commissioner has to go through, uh, the ATO has released, or have recently released, a draft compliant, practical compliance guideline, PCG 2022-D2. Now, this draft guideline operates a safe harbour that provided your client satisfies the relevant conditions uh, and allows the practitioner to manage the tax affairs of their client as if the commissioner had granted the special circumstances for the non-commercial loss rules. PCG 2022-D2? That's right. That's right. Uh, and it, it has been written in a time, it has only recently been released. I think it was released in June 2022, just in accordance with you know a, a time where small businesses around the country are going to be due to start lodging tax returns based on the figures that would be affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. And so basically to just repeat what you just said, it basically allows tax agent to prepare tax returns as if they already had a private ruling allowing to claim a tax loss even though it doesn't pass any of the tests? Is that what you're saying? That's right. That's right. If your client is below $250,000 and they don't pass the four main statutory tests, then that loss can be utilised against the other income if the safe harbour rules apply. Uh, and ultimately, that will be uh, utilising the tax practitioner's professional judgment to uh, see whether they uh, their client satisfies the relevant conditions that are in the draft practical compliance guideline. So for 21 and 22, we basically just have one test and that is the 250,000 other income test. That can be as long as as long as the business is affected by uh, a major event. Um, and there are three actual major events that are provided in the draft compliance guideline. First one, of course, is that if there was a flood that occurred and affected the business, and that includes a situation, the commissioner provides an example of where you can utilise your professional judgment to say this that this event, uh, this flooding event specifically affected my client's business operations or their business activity. And that's where the, the client received ATO flood support. Uh, the second one that is uh, in the ruling is if the business was affected by a bushfire. So that, that would include uh, clients that qualified for an ATO bushfire lodgement and payment deferral. And the third one, of course, is the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's where the business activity was affected by a government-imposed lockdown. Uh, they were affected by a business closure or some other restriction that uh, was in place uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And so that is PCG 2022-D2 at the moment. Of course, it will be issued as a final version at some stage, but at the moment it is D2. That's correct. 
That's correct. And the one thing I wanted to uh, jump in and, and explain about the uh, PCG 2022-D2 is that in PCG 2022-D2, the Commissioner of Taxation is allowing individual taxpayers to apply the safe harbour for the years ending 30 June 2020, 30 June 2021, and 30 June 2022. So therefore, in certain circumstances, yeah. Yeah, so for three years. For three years, 2020 through to 2022. So therefore, in certain circumstances, uh, you may not have applied for a private ruling because it was a bit difficult or you weren't sure you were going to get it. Uh, you'll be able to go back and amend the relevant tax returns for your clients and receive an additional tax refund. And that could be beneficial, especially when you take into consideration something else that's happened in the last few years, and that was that the individual tax rates were a little bit higher in the 2019-2020 income year. The previous government passed legislation that effectively provided tax cuts for individuals from 1 July 2020. So ultimately, you can, at the end of the day, you can do a little bit of shuffling if uh, you know that these circumstances applied and you're able to utilise the safe harbour and you can get maybe a slightly better advantage for your client than ultimately waiting for the business activity to turn a profit and claim it against the income. For example, that might be ready to claim that income in the 2022 income year. Can I just get your thoughts on something? And that is, isn't there quite an unfair treatment of sole traders in this? If you have a sole trader and their only income is from the sole trader business and before the pandemic, they paid a lot of tax and then there's another business and that operates through a company and before the pandemic they also paid a lot of tax and so now the pandemic comes and the um, business that operated through a company can get all the tax back they previously paid whereas the sole trader can't the only thing the sole trader got is that they can tax deduct their loss against other income but if they don't have any other income apart from their sole trader business then they can't get the tax back they paid in previous years whereas a company can does am i right and isn't that a bit unfair yes it can be i guess it works both ways in the micro business standpoint so ultimately the first $18,200 is tax-free, that's the tax-free threshold. So obviously, if you have deductions in your business that are in your sole trader, and that those deductions bring you down below $18,200, even though you may have paid tax in previous years, uh, your tax benefit from claiming that loss or having those deductions in your business activity is uh, non-existent because you're below the tax-free threshold. So that's the thing that uh, individuals who are sole traders need to weigh up in terms of uh, structuring what type of entity that is that they are utilizing in their business activity. And then the other, the shoe on the other, putting your foot on the other shoe, is that the right way that you say it? Yeah, yeah, putting the shoe on the other foot. And But putting the shoe on the other foot, though, is that under $18,200 in taxable profit for a company is still taxable at the uh, company tax rates, which is a flat rate. So ultimately, as a practitioner, you do have to be wary of this when you are dealing with clients who are sole traders. And obviously, as somebody is starting to grow their business 
the, the ATO has, also not the ATO, as a taxpayer is growing their business as a sole trader, you have got options throughout Division 328 of the Income Tax Assessment Act that allows you to restructure the, the business entity from, say, a sole trader into a trust or into a company, uh, especially as they become more profitable. So the final takeaway that I have in relation to the, the safe harbour is that tax practitioners can now use their well-developed professional judgment to help a client of theirs self-assess for non-commercial losses throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and through other disasters that have occurred over the past few years. And when it comes to getting information from your clients, being able to adequately discuss the issues surrounding the business activity loss can actually now be framed around the draft guideline in PCG 2022-2 so that as a practitioner, you can use the relief where it is applicable rather than relying on getting the commissioner to grant these special circumstances in Division 35. So the hardcore gateway into tax deducting sole trader losses is the $250,000 threshold of other income. PCG 2022-D2 can't help you with that one. That's the hard line in the sand. But the turnover threshold of $20,000 is a soft line in the sand at the moment. If you can show that the turnover didn't reach $20,000 due to under circumstances beyond your control, for example, fire, drought, flooding or COVID, then you can still tax deduct these losses against other income. In the next episode, episode 370, let's go through the latest changes and developments around SMSFs with Kevin Zeng of Class in Sydney. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.